You're listening to the American Alpine Club podcast. This is Hannah Provo, content director at the AAC. Year after year, climbers that are part of the AAC have told us that our policy work is incredibly important to them. Climbers are passionate about making sure the landscapes they love are protected, that climate change is addressed and mitigated, and that climbing access is easy and equitable for every human. But many times, we don't have any idea where to start, or it seems too daunting a task to achieve. But we've seen our members and chapters dig in and get dirty, leading local campaigns and advocating for the issues that matter most to climbers in their region. That's why we started the Climbers Advocacy Network, so we can better resource and share knowledge with climbers across the country who are advocating for issues that matter to you. In this episode, we sat down to talk to some of the newest CAN volunteers and learn about the kickoff event called the Climbers Advocacy Network, or CAN Summit. We talked to Sam Masters, a CAN volunteer for Colorado, and Reese Rogers, a CAN volunteer for Georgia, about why they are getting involved, how they are learning and growing in this space, and some of the issues they might address with their fellow volunteers. We talked to Sam and Reese at the summit itself, and you might be able to hear the hustle and bustle of activity in the background of our interviews. We also sat down with campaign consultant and advocacy expert Sky Shell, who helped shape the education program for the summit and can give us a more zoomed out look at what the CAN is all about and what it can achieve. Since these live interviews, CAN advocates in Colorado, like Sam, have refined their campaign plan. They're joining in the fight to protect a huge swath of the Dolores River as a national conservation area. Reese and his fellow Georgia climbers are working on a campaign to install an office of the outdoors in Georgia and thereby better resource public lands and opportunities for recreational tourism. Check back in at AmericanAlpineClub.org stories to hear how these campaigns are going and what you can do to get involved in policy that impacts climbers. I am sitting here with Sam at the Climbers Advocacy Network Summit, and after a long day of lots of hard work on policy, learning all the all the things, we want to get to know you a little bit and um, kind of why you're here and what motivates you and the future of what you think you're going to be doing with the CAN Network. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about yourself, Sam. I mean, I guess the uh, elevator pitch would be graduated with a degree in journalism and political science um, back in 2011 ended up moving into the outdoor recreation sector, and then found a love for emergency medicine, search and rescue. So I was doing search and rescue work um, in California um, and ended up working as a paramedic in Boston and worked out of level one trauma center in Boston. But the overprescribing um, of medications and the abuse of patients and the abuse of you know the, uh, our entire healthcare system and lack of attention to underrepresented communities made me quit. Hmm. And so... I pursued more of a realm of Outdoors Rx and trying to find better means to help serve underrepresented communities by getting them outside. Moved back to the outdoor recreation sector, worked with North Face and Marmot for a while, mm-hmm. um, building out some other platforms with them. And it dawned on me that after some work with uh, this guy by the name of Kalen O'Brien Feeney, who's the Oregon Parks and Recreation Director, 
for the state of Oregon that I was meant to uh, dive into environmental policy Mm. um, and take a nosedive into figuring out exactly how to merge the gap between public lands and public health Mm. um, and getting people active and outside, whether that's youth, underrepresented communities, anyone, all walks of life, equity, diversity, inclusion, um, and being able to spearhead some of these initiatives where the outdoor recreation economy is the fourth largest revenue driver in the United States. So let's, let's use that. Let's use that as a power source to bring us to the federal level to create some change. Mm-hmm. And so that's what fires me up. And Taylor Lanou brought me right in to help support the Colorado chapter um, as the chapter chair uh, for the state of Colorado. That is awesome. Obviously, uh, we're going to get more into your motivations. Sounds like the rich in detail, which I just fascinating, the SAR background, the emergency medicine background, and the public health perspective. But let's just – obviously climbing is important to you because that's the angle through which you're thinking about, you know, this program at least. Just tell us a story about a climbing experience you had that was joyful, crazy, or maybe even fearful. You know, climbing's always been a challenging um, realm for me because I am terrified of heights, <laughs> but I do it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to do things that scare me. But not foolishly, um, with you know, within the means of my my own personal safety margins, uh, which I believe are relatively conservative. But you know, I think one that brings me joy was a couple of years ago. I took everything that I'd learned over the years from glacier climbing, backcountry skiing, but I'd always followed. Mm-hmm. I'd always had someone that knew more than me, which is what I always try to do: is mm-hmm. have someone there that knows more than me, so that I can learn. Mm-hmm. Um, but I felt it was time to challenge that and actually lead an expedition. So I led a backcountry ski uh, climb um, up Rainier um, and skied off of Eamon's Glacier. Cool. Um, and it certainly terrified me, like, leaving the parking lot. I'm like, I'm in charge of this group. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm the one that knows the most. <laughs> yeah. um, but it was so fun and, you know, felt like I got into a groove and was comfortable and, mm-hmm. like, was able to kind of really push that push the boundaries for myself and realize what just having confidence in what I know. Yeah. Um, I think that was really helpful for me and my, my psyche. And like, since then lead climbing has kind of become no problem. Even with my fear of heights. I'm like, no, there's confidence there. Once you just start to push those boundaries. Yeah. I can, I definitely have not climbed Rainier, but, uh, <laughs> or skied it for that matter, but definitely can identify with that sense of like pushing boundaries. That was a really cool story. Thanks. Um, so yeah, tell us more, like dive in the motivation for you to be here right now. Like why climbing? Cause obviously you're thinking about recreation and public health. What is it about climbing in this or this program in particular that you find is like a good opportunity to do what that public health uh, objective that you're interested in? Well, there's the public health objective, and then there's the environmental protections objective. Mm -hmm. And I think go hand in hand, both 50% attention needs to be paid to both. Mm -hmm. And my passion lies within providing equity and access and helping those initiatives to, you know, boost the outdoor recreation economy while uh, mitigating gentrification Mm -hmm. and like ensuring locals get to stay and ensuring all populations are represented, no matter the color of your skin and like that you're accepted in these places. So that comes with conversation that comes with policy, zoning laws, everything of that sort. And like, it's not necessarily just the climbing areas I care about. It's also the climate change aspect. Like these places are going to be gone. Mm-hmm. And with it, and I'm fighting for the next generation. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that climate change is going to take its toll on this generation for the next hundred years, and we're not necessarily going to see the change we want. But as long as we're on that right course of action to preserve our alpine spaces 
ensure that we have proper, like ensure the snow is going to come back, ensure that we have weather patterns that are going to be a little bit more succinct and, in, and harmonious the way that they used to be before the industrial age to like really start pushing these other initiatives um, while also creating stewards that where we can bring them to these outdoor spaces and especially targeting the youth and bringing youth um, to the crag and to these climbing spaces and the alpine spaces and help them understand what it means to protect these areas while also to have fun. Um, And I think also climbing in general is a sport that scares people too. Mm-hmm. of like there's a there is a barrier there like if you don't have a rope if you don't have a harness like if you don't have a crash pad it's really hard to figure out and how to break through those barriers and i remember at the la- the last crag and classic over in smith rock it was the first time the can network got to meet there and tommy caldwell was there and tommy's like i'm tired i don't necessarily want to do right now all of the uh, uh clinics i want to bring legislators mm-hmm. to the crag show them what's important here and show them why we want to protect these these spaces and just seeing these legislators Oregon state legislators with their jaws on the floor getting harnessed up getting belayed by Tommy or people from the AAC or the, you know it's a memory that they're going to have as they're signing their next piece of legislation to protect Smith Rock mm. to protect all the major climbing areas here across the country mm-hmm. um and so have making sure that we instill memories there to push those policy initiatives are really important. Yeah, you just described a whole map of ways that climbing is really helpful in this policy space, which is really cool. So let's, so we're at the CAN Summit, gathering all these folks together to really, you know, lay the groundwork for this program. Um, can you just reflect a little bit about like, what have you been learning today? This is only day one, right? But what have you been learning today? How have you grown today? And what are you most excited about that you've started to engage with? I think that, um, you know, Taylor Lanou has done such an extraordinary job pulling this together in terms of the curriculum that's here, mm-hmm. the faces that are here, um, bringing the volunteers and making them feel so valued here with the Alpine Club, I think first and foremost was so important to help grow the CAN network. And then we step into the classroom where you have someone like Sky who is providing the most detailed and digestible roadmap to how do we, how do we start? Where do we go from here? And from, you know, creating, thinking about a piece of legislation that you would want to have passed, who are the stakeholders involved? How do you communicate with them? How do we, you know, who are the supporters? Who are the uh, opposers? And how do you try to bring everyone to the middle of the table? Mm -hmm. Um, Not to mention starting to think about um, the ways that we interact with indigenous cultures too. Um, I think was very important and a precedent that was set at the, as our very first topic of indigenous land mm-hmm. and having that acknowledgement um, and understanding that uh, Native American rights, in a nutshell, it's hard to compress that in one session. It's impossible. Yeah. Um, but at least we started with that and set the tone as we started to now start thinking about legislation in our individual states. Um, and then the breakout groups as we as states got together and got to start thinking together for the first time in person. Um, I think was super important here too. Um, and then getting excited tomorrow for learning for everyone to be able to learn how to lobby mm-hmm. and learn how to do this. And like the process of legislation of what that takes from concept, from constituents, wanting that, wanting, wanting change to that becoming actual law. What does that process look like? Mm-hmm. And I think that it's incredibly important and that's what is brought here to the table. Um, that the Alpine Club is so eloquently and detailed, uh, detail-oriented, um, it, it 
it's very cool to see this CAN network come to fruition the way that it has. I cannot express enough how impressed I am by the the um, robustness of what Taylor has put together. I'm really happy that you guys are finding it be what you need. Yeah. So I'm so interested with working on the Colorado team. You know, you're kind of working within a state where a lot of people already recognize the value of public lands in some ways, but there's plenty of other things I'm sure that a lot of Colorado legislation isn't necessarily reckoning with. Um, Where do you think kind of what are the issues that you're starting to identify as maybe potential for what the Colorado CAN program might be thinking about working on? Gentrification. And what we've seen happen to Vail, what we've seen happen to Jackson, Wyoming, um, are such examples of how outdoor recreation has boomed and blossomed and provided so much economic value to an area, to a region, yet the locals can't stay. Mm -hmm. The locals can't enjoy the mountains and the trails and the climbing crags that like they used to out out their back back door because it's literally taken from them Mm -hmm. as property value goes up. You know, you look at a place like Yeray where ice climbing Mecca of the world, well, one of them, I say that, but (laughs) I know it's one of them, um, that, you know, on the Yeray Brewing Company's website, they're on the main page, it says that we have to close our doors at seven every every day because A, um, none of our staff can afford housing here anymore. And B, um, we're just not, we can't pay them enough. So there's this huge shift that's happening here that, you know, where there are still areas in Colorado that can steer that in the right direction. Um, and especially areas around climbing communities like a town of Montrose. And, you know, I know Minturn's close to some of the major areas and property values going up there, but that's still an area that locals like can start to, you know, work on there. Like um, Grand Junction area, like let, let's make sure that our locals are protected and make sure that they continue to have the access that they always have. Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention providing the equitable access for those in underserved communities, especially developing youth programming to bring them to the crag within schools, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, from elementary schools to middle schools, to high schools, to community colleges, making sure that, you know, there are these climbing programs where we can start to really fund that because like I said, the outdoor recreation economy is the fourth largest revenue driver in the United States. Let's start taking this seriously. And let's start making sure that the jobs are there mm-hmm. and the job training is there. Mm-hmm. And then let's focus on keeping people around the crags where they, that they call home, mm-hmm. um, I think is one of the most important. And then in terms of uh, other initiatives, it's protection of public lands. Yeah. It is growth of them. It is money towards infrastructure, utilizing the funds from the American Rescue Plan Act to grow the outdoor rec economy which is a huge chunk of change that each state gets. Mm-hmm. So let's focus on revenue. Let's focus on allocation of resources and let's focus on infrastructure. And in terms of policy, um, making sure that our lands, our public lands are protected and that the borders and the boundaries around those lands are solid and can only expand and not shrink. I love the sound of that. <laughs> That's really uh, interesting. Thank you for sharing all that details. Okay, so as we kind of finish talking here, because I'm sure we could go on and on, but I want to <laughs> let you have some free time. What would you say to other climbers who are interested in getting involved in the CAN network? What I would say is email me. <laughs> <Perfect>. <laughs> 
smasters24 at gmail.com. Um, I, but I'm serious. Like we could use all the help we can get. We are currently working on expanding the Colorado team um, in terms of anyone that wants to get involved, anyone that has an issue with an area that they want to start exploring legislation for. If there's current legislation that needs backing by the Alpine Club at the, in, at the state of Colorado level, which is my jurisdiction here, reach out to us and making sure like the Alpine Club can get involved because the Alpine Club also includes our partners too that can also get involved from the access front to all government sectors too, and natural resources and um, environmental sectors. There's so many key stakeholders that we can start tapping to really create a robust network here. And with the CAN network and the American Alpine Club growing and expanding, that puts the Alpine Club at the forefront of policy, just as POW is, just as the Access Fund is. Um, and that's no competition, that's partnership. And so I think that if you want to get involved, just reach out to us. If you're here in Colorado, if you are in the Western Slope, Front Range, wherever you are, just reach out to us and we'll get back to you with some action plans that we're either A, already working on or let you know what's coming down the pipes for the future. Awesome. Thanks, Sam, for speaking with me today. This was really great to talk to you. Yeah, for sure. It was great to talk to you too. Thank you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You're part of the Climbers Advocacy Network, and um, we've been featuring some of the Climbers Advocacy Network people on our podcast. And I just want to start off with, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I, uh, I'm a resident, uh, well, right outside of Atlanta, Georgia, um, and I've been volunteering with the American Alpine Club since I moved to Georgia in 2019, uh, first as the treasurer for the Atlanta chapter and now in this new role with CAN. And yeah, as far as climbing goes, I started climbing in California where I lived previously. I like kind of climbing in the Sierra Nevada and larger mountain ranges, but you know, adapting to the Southeast and the sort of cliff lines that we have there at the moment has been a transition, but it's been fun. Awesome. Can you share with us, you can pick or do all three if you even want to, um, a story of, about climbing that's either joyful, crazy, or something about fear? Sure. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see. I really think I, I think one, one trip that just stands out in my mind was um, there was some fear involved, but I think it was really just indicative of what I love about climbing was climbing uh, Mount Clark in the Yosemite backcountry with a couple of climbing uh, friends of mine. Um, it's not a hard route by any means. It's technically mostly fourth class, but it has a kind of historical element of having been climbed by um, some of the geological survey members. Uh, I think back in the, maybe the first ascent was like the 19th century. Um, and so just being able to go back into the backcountry and camp and wind our way up this really kind of narrow ridge line, almost like to a point where it was just this sidewalk in the sky, almost just with hundreds or of feet of air below us and very little protection. <laughs> uh, it was, it was, uh. I think that was like, it was a subdued joy and a little bit of fear, but I think the combination was ultimately like really amazing. Um, and yeah, we had a great time and it was, it was cool to see that be connected to the climbing history a little bit through that route as well. Yeah. A description of a sidewalk in the sky. That sounds incredible, honestly. 
Okay, so a little bit about why you're here and what's kind of getting you involved in CAN, what's motivating you. I'm really, yeah, I'm interested in that. What is motivating you to get involved in policy and advocacy in general? Maybe get involved in the Climbers Advocacy Network. And then kind of specifically, why are you choosing to advocate through the lens of climbing? Yeah, sure. I So I dabble a little bit in policy work in my day job. I work in the climate and energy sphere, to put it broadly. Right now, I work for an organization that does uh, work on zero emission vehicles, mostly transit buses. Um, and so I do a bit of kind of policy an- analyzing for them. And, uh, you know, I think the conversations in the climbing community recently have shifted towards this, you know, recognizing the impact of, of climate change on climbing areas. Mm-hmm. And there has been this I think awareness kind of evolving amongst climbers that, you know, this is an issue we need to kind of take seriously. Um, And so I think part of me just wants to lend some of the skills I've learned in my day job to the climbing community and really kind of support that conversation because I think it's important. And I think there's a lot of potential for climbers to kind of organize around that issue and, and make a difference. And yeah, it kind of puts a fun spin on it too. It's I think it keeps my motivation up for doing the work I do in my day job as well because I'm not exactly passionate about vehicle technology, but <laughs> I think I'm passionate about climbing and being outdoors um, and the community in climbing and so they kind of feed off each other Um, Mm. and ultimately i think you know they're both driving towards the same goal advocating for you know solutions to climate change and some of the environmental impacts that our society has and so you know anything that sustains that work i think is a good thing yeah absolutely this seems like it's really a robust part of your life then that's really cool yeah you guys can probably hear the chatter in the background that's the other can volunteers chatting after a long day of hard work can you reflect for us a little bit, like, what has this first day of the CAN Summit, like, th- how do you start thinking about and what is it kind of leading you to learn and reflect on? Yeah, I think the work we've done today, learning about a framework on how to organize grassroots uh, volunteers and a grassroots campaign around an issue is is relatively new to me. Even though I've done policy work in the past, it's been more of a in a regulatory space or kind of a organized more of like a support role for an organization and so the idea of creating something from the ground up um, with kind of just community members and thinking through like who gets to participate or who you want to participate or who needs to participate to make make something happen um, has been a really useful exercise and also kind of I think brings a new perspective to just like the climbing community it's not just kind of climbing partners or potential friends or you know it's a group of people that can actually organize together to like advocate for something that they feel is important so yeah what would you so I I know not a lot of people are like climbing's the space where I go to not think about the world right how do you think about that because clearly maybe it is for you like it is an escape in some ways but also it's some it's a place where you want to build community and make a change and that sort of thing what is it about your perspective that leads you to that kind of both, both perspective. Yeah, I think it's, um, I, I don't know if climbing is necessarily an escape for me. It, it, I think it working in kind of the climate and energy space can be uh, draining sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I think 
seeing kind of this grassroots movement of people who are advocating for something because it's protecting something they care about um, on like a really personal and almost spiritual level for some people is is motivating and I think hopeful and kind of gives me uh, yeah hope that there's you know that, that people can rally around this issue of climate change and, and protecting public spaces and, and increasing access to public spaces these things that are almost like microcosms of larger issues in our society um, I think is uh, yeah it's it's it helps me I think view those issues in a better light in a way. <laughs> Awesome. So you are the kind of the leader of the hub in Georgia, right? You could say that. As yeah. of right now? <laughs> it's, yeah. a, it's a team effort. Team effort. Okay. So part of the leadership, <laughs> the group in Georgia. What are some of the hot issues right now that you're identifying for your region, for climbers in your region? How are you thinking about that? Yeah. So I think there's a couple that we have in mind right now. One is really just elevating climbers' um, engagement as and inclusion as a user group in some of the, the expanding discussions around outdoor recreation in the state. There's a larger conversation in the state right now amongst a few groups, just as far as like the economic uh, impact of outdoor recreation in Georgia. Um, and, you know, that that needs, that should be organized and maybe planned a little better. And so uh, we want to make sure that Climbers are, are kind of included in that conversation so that we don't uh, have issues with uh, access in the future when, you know, new manage- land management plans come out. And I think another aspect, too, is we have a great uh, local climbing organization, the Southeastern Climbers Coalition, who does a lot of work in um, stewardship and maintaining access uh, because we have a lot of climbing areas on private land and, you know, not as much expansive kind of federal public lands in the Southeast. So it's a lot of kind of more like individualistic management issues when it comes to land access. Um, And so one of the things we've talked about is what is our role as the CAN when it comes to, you know, that space and, and sharing the space with the Southeastern Climbers Coalition and I think one of the things that we're, we're looking at is really just being the kind of legislative and policy advocates to advocate for the resources that the land managers need mm-hmm. to uh, maintain stewardship and, and access for climbers. And so really kind of supporting the Southeastern Climbers Coalition in their access work kind of through these yeah. the state halls of power, if you will. <laughs> um, and, uh, and yeah, making sure that there's resources provided for the work that they do. Well, this is getting me so psyched about the potential of the Climbers Advocacy Network, and I love getting to talk to you. I guess last question for you today, so you can go off and socialize with the rest of the folks here. What would you say to somebody who's, like, interested in getting involved? I would definitely say uh, don't feel like if you haven't done any sort of policy work or advocacy work before that that's a barrier. I think a lot of us are learning some of this um, for the first time. And, but, you know, I think as a community, the more people we can get in the advocacy role, the stronger it's going to be and the more we'll learn from each other. So we definitely need people 
in those roles and we need people to help out and uh, yeah, reach out if you want to help. <laughs> awesome. It was so great to talk to you. Likewise. Thank you. <laughs> Hi, Sky. Welcome to the podcast. Um, it's great to have you on. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Uh, let's just start by telling telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in the CAN Summit. Sure. Well, I live out in Jackson, Wyoming. I'm a climber myself. I like to say I am the most mediocre climber who's been climbing for 15 years. Um, and I had a former colleague, Amelia Howe, who used to work at the American Alpine Club, and she was a graduate of a program that I used to run in Jackson, the Conservation Leadership Institute. And so she left Jackson and she'd been working at the club and was building the, the Climbers Advocacy Network program and reached out to me because she had heard that I left my old job at the Jackson Hole Conservation Alliance and was consulting. So working with a variety of nonprofits and political organizations and candidates. And one of the things that I like really like to do is leadership development and training people in grassroots organizing. So Amelia knew that was an interest of mine and she was looking for a facilitator for the CAN Summit. And so I jumped at the opportunity and I had to cancel a climbing trip. I had booked the best campsites in City of Rocks <laughs> back in January or even earlier uh, and had to let go of those, but it was totally worth it. No regrets. Wow, that is dedication. Okay, so that is really cool. I love that connection to staff and how you just got more and more involved with the AAC. Um, so it sounds like you are a climber and that's part of the reason why you're interested in working, you were interested in working with the CAN Summit. Um, can you just share a joyful, crazy or scary climbing experience with us? Sure. I actually shared the story during the summit. One of the uh, the major parts of the curriculum is called public narrative, which is something that I learned from Marshall Gans, who's a great community organizer. And it's all about story of self, story of us, and story of now to motivate people. So we started out the summit by having everybody share a story, which was mostly climbing stories. So mine was about a time on Chimney Rock in central Washington. And it was, I've actually been two and a half times, haven't been to the top yet. And I'm not going to go into all the details, but uh, the first time I tried to climb it, my friend Eric took a 25-foot whipper on a number three cam, which was very scary to watch, especially because I was belaying him off the side of a moat. So it was like a 50-foot deep um, gap between the glacier and the rock, and I was afraid I was going to get pulled over the edge and dropped into the moat while I was trying to hold him. Uh, luckily, didn't. Anyway, we went back a couple years later with our friend Ryan, who was supposed to be the rope gun, but instead uh, just brought a bunch of really strange food, like cooked sweet potatoes, whole, uh, a glass container full of cooked bacon. I mean, it was good stuff, but it was strange. <laughs> and at the end of, uh, we actually made it a lot further that time. We were one pitch from the summit and at this incredible ledge, it was a beautiful sunset. And Eric and I really wanted to camp uh, just bivy up there. We had just enough uh, equipment with us to bivy. But Ryan said he would not bivy. He didn't want his feet to get cold. So we had to basically turn around because it was more important to, you know, maintain that friendship than to get to the top. 
Um, so I've always wanted to go back and hopefully someday we'll go back ideally with Eric and Ryan, but we'll see. Mm -hmm. That is awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. And that's really cool that like, that was a key part of the, the summit itself and storytelling is so important to advocacy. And I have a follow-up to that. After I shared that story, you know, everybody else told their stories and Tommy Caldwell was part of the event. He was there to teach lobbying, but he also participated throughout so he got up and was like, well, I've got a story that kind of, you know, it's similar to Skies and then told the story about a six day, 513 climb in Yosemite. And I was like, that is not at all related to the story that I told, but I'm glad that it felt that way to you. So yeah, yeah. a lot of good stories and good people at that event. Yeah. And like, I feel like that it does a really good job of, and this is probably exactly why you were teaching this element of advocacy is just making, finding a connection and common ground first and foremost. Exactly. So as a like consultant, grassroots campaign organizer, somebody who specializes in educating grassroots campaigners, how would you describe the potential of what the Climbers Advocacy Network could achieve? Yeah, I think it's super exciting. And, you know, from the minute Amelia told me about it, then working with Taylor on the team, I have been inspired to see what the Alpine Club is doing. And I think looking at some of the voter engagement work from 2020 that they did is also really cool. And, you know, what I love about it and just in general, what I love to see is grassroots organizing where the people on the ground, so, you know, the the climbers who are members, whether it's in Georgia or Utah, Colorado, New England, they all know what the issues are. Um, it's also important to have support from policy experts. So that's, you know, having Taylor, having other folks on the team who can say, well, you know, that issue that you want to work on, it's super important, but I can tell you it's not going to go anywhere or this issue is going to go somewhere. So having that mix of people on the ground along with policy expertise can be a really good combination. And, you know, from my couple days spent with the group, it's clear this is still a program in development. And, you know, the Alpine Club is figuring out where to go with it. And I think there's some exciting potential to partner with the other, you know, the local climbing organizations. We were sort of brainstorming afterwards, thinking about maybe the point of CAN isn't to create a whole new structure of new organizations, but it's to provide training to the existing superstars. So people who are existing AAC volunteers or people who are involved in their local climbing organization. And, you know, one example was, I think it was called the Salt Lake Climbers Alliance, which has been already doing its own campaigns and members of that group could come to CAN, get some training, um, and basically bring that back to their existing organizations, which I think that is a really good model because in my own work, you know, starting a whole new thing, it's a whole lot of work. And that work isn't the campaign, it's the administration, the organization. So the more that you at the club can build on existing organizations and then add value with the training, the expertise, the knowledge, I think that's going to just like exponentially increase what your people and your partners are able to get done. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, how does the AAC Climbers Advocacy Network fit into the larger context of grassroots activism coming out of the outdoors industry in general? Or maybe like it seems like, you know, there's only a couple 
pockets of maybe climbing specific advocacy, mostly dominated by the access fund and the LCOs. But so you're kind of speaking to this idea of like amplifying power and figuring out how to like amplify through resources. Is that correct? That's right. And I think of it, I'm not huge on military metaphors, but it's sort of like a special forces training where, you know, there's volunteers with the Alpine Club and with tons of other organizations. People are just figuring things out as they go. And a lot of what we were trying to teach, starting with public narrative and then a lot of campaign planning, which I borrowed from the Sierra Club over many years. Um, The point there is people often have an idea. There's something that they care about. They're like, hey, this has to change. I want to do something about it. And they go straight from the issue to the tactics. We're going to do a rally. We're going to write postcards, whatever it is, without thinking about who makes the decisions that we need and what has to happen to get those people on board. And then the question is, is a rally going to get, you know, three county commissioners or a state legislative committee or whatever it is, you know, is it going to change those people's minds? And so that's where I think a training like this can really help because you've got a ton of passionate people out there, uh, but they need some level of tried and true how to do campaigns. So I think both can providing that, obviously other partners, you know, Patagonia does great trainings. So it's, I think the more that the Alpine Club can work with those other organizations, the better. And then maybe eventually sort of dialing in on like, this is the specific training that we provide. And other groups, you know, the Access Fund might start sending their people to you because they think it's such a cool training. And, you know, that's just one possibility. I think there's there's many other ways to go about it, but there are so many organizations in the space. You know, you look at POW, which is really doing incredible work on climate and activism. So, you know, you don't have to do everything. You don't have to invent the whole project by yourselves. Yeah. And I think that is becoming really clear to the CAN members as they figure out their first campaigns. I spoke to a number of them and they were uh, a couple of months now, two months after the uh, CAN summit. And they're much more like thinking about how they can join in coalitions and work alongside people who are already doing this work and bring the resources to those coalitions. Absolutely. Uh, So can you give us a brief snapshot of maybe some of the kind of knowledge you shared with the CAN volunteers at the summit? Absolutely. So we start with public narrative, which is basically storytelling for advocacy. And it both helps you build your team by motivating people to join you, you know, understanding why you care about the issue, what your values are. It's all about values-based communication. And then move into campaign planning. So defining the issue, what are the goals, what's the lay of the land, are there other groups working on this on your side or the other side? Then thinking about the targets, so who makes the decisions that you want made, and then who influences those people, which could be specific people, it could be constituency groups, and that helps you figure out your target audience for your communications. And then once you've got your target audience, you can craft a message to their values. Um, Another common pitfall is crafting a message from your own values, but in this case, you really want to tap into your listeners, and it's the people who can influence the decision makers. Once you've got your message, then you get into strategies and tactics, which is where people usually want to start. But now it's sort of, you know, it was 
a day and a half in before we got into strategies and tactics and, you know, everyone had big sheets of paper and they're sort of mapping it out and sharing with each other. And it was a lot of fun. Um, it's also very theoretical when you're just in a classroom for two days. So, you know, they've all since gone home, they're digging in, figuring out maybe this actually doesn't make sense as a project and find something else or, yes, we are really stoked about this project and we're going to keep working on it. But the point of the curriculum is to provide a framework that they can use really on any campaign or any advocacy project, um, specifically around policy change, but really it, it can apply across a wide range of areas. I wish I could have been there. <laughs> Definitely. Hopefully we'll do it again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so I guess... We don't have a ton of time, so I just want to ask, I guess, one more question. Um, a lot of people, I think in general culture right now, but also a lot of people in the environmental space um, are kind of struggling with and working through a lot of despondency or despair about the seeming lack of ability to make the world change or make any headway or that sort of thing. You believe that the work can happen because this is your job. <laughs> so what? why do you work in this space and how would you respond to those doubts and how do you encourage people when they do kind of walk through that type of emotional space? That is a good question. And, you know, I do this work not because I'm necessarily optimistic that everything is going to turn out well, because there's a whole lot going wrong in this world, economic inequality, social inequality, racial inequality, not to even mention climate change. So, you know, there we're up as a, you know, human race, we're up against pretty big odds of, you know, seeing another hundred years. That said, the only way that I have found to both make any kind of difference and to have hope is to be in community and to be in movements and to try to be part of movements that work with other movements. So for me personally, that's been a lot of work in the environmental world and in the affordable housing and homelessness world. And often those two, especially in the West, are seen as at odds. So you can only do one or the other, but I think we can do both. And so what I found is when I'm when I feel like I'm working by myself, it's a lot harder to have optimism. But just being part of a good team, being part of a campaign, I still remember the first campaign that really changed my life was the Mike McGinn for mayor campaign in Seattle in 2009. And I had been really excited about the Obama election. And then there's the whole summer of the Tea Party blowing up and death panels and all that nonsense. And I got really uh, really just despaired on national politics and then found this local election in Seattle's huge, you know, 600,000 voters. So, um, still a pretty big election, but we were able to make a difference where our candidate started with a 4% in the polls and ended up winning the election and was the mayor of Seattle. And it was just this like little known Sierra club volunteer who had a really good campaign team and he was a great candidate as well. So just seeing, being part of experiences like that has given me hope to keep going. And there's also a quote, I think, from Dorothy Day, which was, uh, if you don't see anything to be hopeful about, do something hopeful. So it's not about having hope and like thinking things are going to be all right, but just like we're here, so we might as well do something that, you know, 
tries to bring people together and make a difference because otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, I love that so much. Thanks for sharing that quote. That's awesome. Okay, well, thank you so much for speaking to me today. Do you have any last uh, memories or thoughts about the Can Summit that you want to share? I just thought it was a fantastic time. Um, we're still dealing with COVID and on the drive, my drive down to Golden, Taylor called me and said, you know, people are dropping out because of COVID. We might only have six people there. I was like, oh man, that's like, that's not enough people to be worthwhile and was pretty nervous, but I got there and we actually had, I think it was more like a dozen people and that was enough people to really feel like we had critical mass and energy in the room. And we had, I think four or five groups who all had multiple people in their groups and the energy was just really inspiring. And I left the event incredibly jazzed up and just excited about what the people, the teams, what the network is going to do over time. So I'm very excited to see where it goes and grateful that I got to be part of the first summit. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for doing that. If anybody wants to work with you, how do they find you? Great question. I've got a website. It's called yellowtreestrategy.com. Yellow tree because I love larch trees and ponderosa, which is orange, but called the yellow pine. Um, And aspens out here in Wyoming used to live out in Seattle. So those trees have always kept me grounded. Anyway, yellowtreestrategy.com. I am definitely looking for other groups who want to do grassroots organizing, leadership development, and civic engagement. So yeah, be in touch. And thanks again for having me part of the Climbers Advocacy Network. Today's show was hosted by me, Hannah Provo, and produced by Sierra McGivney with help from Shane Johnson. If you want to get involved with the Climbers Advocacy Network, learn more by exploring the resources in the show notes. Explore the full web of AAC stories by visiting AmericanAlpineClub.org stories. Whether you're interested in reading trip reports, a breakdown of environmental policy, community stories, legacy series videos, or accident analysis, we have something for you.